Welcome to Highly Questionable. The old man is out today. It takes an army of gas bags from Chicago, from here in Miami, to replace him. Izzy Gutierrez, what do you like on the show today? We like to make fun of big men and their athleticism. And it's not you, Dan. <laughs> Dale, papi. Whoops, <laughs> he's not once. here. Did the Seahawks prove they're better than the Niners? There were a lot of reasons to question the Seahawks and their schedule going into that game. But you beat that team in that situation on the road, and you've done the most impressive thing that you have done this season. You've ended the undefeated teams, and it is time, again, to marvel at Russell Wilson. Beyond just always playing in close games, always keeping you in every game, even though you can't name many of his offensive players, and very often his offensive line stinks. He's also the pioneer that has broken through and allowed Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray and all these small scat-back types to get a chance that he didn't get by being drafted very high. Russell Wilson has changed the game before all these other guys came after him. Drew Brees was the outlier at that size. Russell Wilson has broken through in a way that allows everyone to have a chance when they didn't at that size before. Well, they broke through in the second half. In the first half, they were bad. It was 89 yards of offense. It was zero points. On the offensive side, it was just Jadavion Clowney taking that fumble in for a touchdown. So say what you will about what he did in the second half, what the Seahawks did in the second half. The first half wasn't that great. And it really was just Jadavion Clowney sort of changing the game here because Russell Wilson, even in the overtime, threw an interception that if McLaughlin makes a kick, that looks terrible for him. So I'm not ready to say that Seattle's definitely better, especially when their other two wins came against the 5-4 and four Steelers and the 5-4 and four Rams. But in this game, on the road, this is a game that, yeah, you feel really good about after you win. Yeah, I don't think you can watch this game and say for certain which is the better team because a field goal could have won it for the Niners. Another pick could have won it for the Seahawks. There were seven turnovers in this game. The Seahawks had as many plays in overtime as they did in the first half. There were so many weird things about this game that even Russell Wilson, who's always been a Seahawk, said it was the weirdest game of his life. And the Seahawks only ever play weird games. So no, I'm not looking at this one example and saying that I can tell at all which is the better team. They were just better on this night. By the way, Izzy, your hair looks mesmerizing. It really does. I'm hypnotized at how beautiful your hair is. <laughs> Sorry. It matches the suit and tie mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> it also wouldn't have been that color about 10 years ago. Does Jimmy G deserve heat for his play last night? So somehow, at the same time, a 15.7 QBR seems way too low for a guy who competed against the Seahawks team and kept his team in the game and actually set them up for a winning field goal that just didn't go through. At the same time, it also feels low for a guy that fumbled twice, had a pick, and threw two balls that were in the arms of the opposition and dropped. It didn't look good for Jimmy G. But he put his team in position to win, and the expectations coming into this season were a big, fat question mark based on the little that we had seen and the injuries. And then those five interceptions in a row in practice and not looking so good in the preseason. So maybe it's relative to your expectations for him, but it wasn't a great night. He looked a little shaky, and they were still forcing overtime against an MVP candidate and a good Seahawks defense. Well, let's get this out of the way. He didn't have George Kittle, his tight end, who's great. He didn't have Emmanuel Sanders, 
for most of that game. But if you look at the flip side, you see Russell Wilson. Without a running game that really did much, Russell was the Seahawks running game last night. And with a defense that was playing pretty well, he made the difference. Well, the 49ers, they had a running game that all season long has been fantastic. Last night wasn't great. Yes, he didn't have Kittle and Emmanuel Sanders, and he was under pressure sometimes. And under pressure, he was awful. And all season long, his numbers under pressure are not good. I'll throw in those six drops that he had for his team, too. Still, there was more that Jimmy Garoppolo could do. You look at Russell Wilson, he thrives under pressure, almost welcomes it so that he can make a play. Garoppolo did no such thing, and it doesn't really make you feel like he can elevate this team when necessary because last night was necessary. The first question asked on this show was who's better, and we didn't answer it. None of us could say. I think we know that Russell Wilson is a better quarterback than Jimmy Garoppolo, though, because no matter who's out for Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson is going to keep you in a game. Against the pass rush, that's not very good. He turned the ball over last night, and I thought Izzy made the most important point here. Kittle is a bit Gronkian for this offense. If you believe that this is a system quarterback, Goff is what you're going to end up looking like sometimes when you don't have some of these key players and you're facing a kind of pass rush that usually isn't very good, but was good last night. Turning plays into points and doing so at his expense. He can't be the reason the other guys are getting points. Does Jermaine Effetti deserve praise for his effort? I maintain that the best thing about America's most popular sport is when a surprise, scared fat guy has the football. Let's check in here last night with something that should never happen. The ball pops out. Surprise. And then here we go. Here we go. He was going to run 80 yards with that football and score a touchdown. Or he was going to just end up on the floor and the 49ers were going to be celebrating. And I just love, I'm going to read Pete Carroll's quote here because you rarely hear anything like this from a coach after the game. Quote, what what was he thinking? He thinks he's going to score. What was he thinking? I think he was doing this thing, the Heisman and all that. I don't know what he was. And then he just ends it with, that was terrible. You are wrong, Pete Carroll. That was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, the amount that that man was able to dream in the millisecond in which he had the ball and thought he was going toward the end zone, and then when it was fumbled, he had big aspirations for himself. I wouldn't say that it was a bad play, though, because at first I thought he took it from Russell Wilson, like, don't worry, guy, I got this, in which case, (laughs) bad idea. But it was more of a serendipitous squirt. It kind of, like, popped right out into his arms, and worse than him getting it would have been to let it fall. Unfortunately, the result was the same, because once he got it, he immediately dropped it. So, good effort. Bad result. Absolute favorite part of this game was when they cut to Pete Carroll after that play, and he said, how'd that just happen? And you had to sort of watch the replay to figure out what just happened. But I'm going to back a Fady here. I mean, what is he supposed to do? Just fall like a heap? He basically took yes. turned and took one step, yes. and then the ball was popped out again. Fall. I don't think he even got to the point where he was dreaming about a touchdown yet. He was just yeah. starting that yeah, process. There was no time to dream, and I'm guessing he didn't sleep much last night when he remembers what happens at the end of that play. Is Memphis doing the right thing by putting James Wiseman back on the court tonight? Well, this is really interesting. By now, you should know who James Wiseman is. He was a number one recruit, plays for Memphis. Memphis is coached by Penny Hardaway. Back in 2008, Penny Hardaway made a seven-figure donation to the school's Hall of Fame, and that turns him into a booster. 
The NCAA is saying he is indefinitely a booster, and by our rules, that means that when Penny Hardaway gave $11,500 to the Wiseman family to have his mother move to Memphis closer to Wiseman's sister, that makes it an illegal donation. But Memphis, meanwhile, is saying, no, no, your rules are arbitrary, do not apply to us right now. Penny Hardaway was a high school coach at the time in Memphis and was not a booster. You're just trying to take our recruit away. We're going to play him anyway. And this is the move where the athletic director of Memphis is saying, no, no, we're making these decisions. There is a temporary restraining order at play here and they can play Wiseman. It is unprecedented because on the back end, if they go ahead and say he is ineligible, all these games eventually will be vacated. Sarah, it's ridiculously interesting. And Memphis is putting the players first here and saying, we'll deal with the back end later. Right now, our player is going to play. Yeah, the thing is, this is not the first time this has happened at Memphis, right? The Derrick Rose situation has similar shades of the NCAA making it appear as though they believe someone to be eligible, and then after the fact, coming in and saying that he wasn't. And in this case, they cleared Wiseman in May to play. Now someone, presumably, this is what is believed to have happened, brought up his eligibility in question, and now the second game of the season, they changed their mind. We shouldn't have given him his amateurism certificate. He is ineligible. I think this is a very bold move from Memphis. It may result terribly. They may have their wins vacated. They may have success in the tournament. It could mean nothing at all. In fact, they may show up to a game and have the NCAA send a bunch of brawled dudes out there and be like, actually, you're not allowed to play. Stop playing. Get off the court. But more likely what's going to happen is what tends to happen, which is they'll play all season. No one will care. He'll be great. He'll set himself up for an NBA career. Penny Hardaway will make a name for himself as a guy who cares about the players that play for him and whether they get to do what's right. And then when they vacate the wins, no one will care except for the last guy on the bench that doesn't get to be invited back to school for ceremonies and dinners for the next 20 years to celebrate whatever they won that doesn't matter anymore. And you thought that Memphis was a renegade program when they had John Calipari at the helm. I love this story for a lot of different reasons. But Memphis is basically testing the NCAA. And what governing powers do you actually have here? I love that someone is finally standing up for the kids. And what you said about Penny Hardaway is true. People will notice this. He is already doing well in recruiting. And they're just telling the NCAA to bleep off with this. And you don't usually see that. Not since Jerry Tarkanian have you seen someone do something like this and when you look back at the past and you see that this was somebody who was helping a kid's family move back before he was actually in a position of power at memphis back before he knew he was going to be the coach at memphis it makes the argument stand up when we're looking at it finally somebody looking at shamanism and saying yeah this guy's worth a lot of money penny hardaway has a lot of money he gave him a lot of money and none of us care whether the wins are vacated if this team goes deep into the tournament and that's partially why it's super important that Penny Hardaway is the subject here, is the coach here, because he loves Memphis. He loves the school. He loves the area. He's had an NBA career. He doesn't need this coaching job. He's standing up for those players in the area. The NCAA be damned. Yeah, and also it's so nitpicky to say in this case we care about a booster or an AAU coach who's doing things under the table when we know it happens everywhere and you have to go back a full decade to point to a donation he made as to why he shouldn't be allowed to give this sort of benefit. It's so muddy that it's not going to be very much longer that the NCAA can arbitrarily decide when they want to step into cases and when they don't. Coming up next on my Soul Stevie show. It is Veterans Day, and we know right. that... Oh, this guy's looking at the phone here, distracted wow. by his phone. For this country, <laughs> what? Well, that's where the crime falls apart, right there. 
Time to play the game that's going to crush the dance floor at Dan's wedding. Do you question? Saturday. I believe he's going to be very good. I will not be. You give us topics and events, we will question him. Do you question if more teams should use this punt formation? I question how much we're covering the holy hell out of this 49ers-Seahawks game where we're going to a punt in the second quarter that we want to check out here. What happens on this punt? Thank you for the arrow. Oh, oh, a big running start like the CFL. Where are the blockers? No blockers, is he? No blockers! That could have ended poorly. Seattle does not seem to be prepared for that formation. Where did he come from? He was just lined up somewhere different. We don't know what to do with this person. Let me take a look again at that Seahawk who had the responsibility of blocking the guy who was running uh, on rocket fuel out of the backfield right in front. This guy in the middle here. Yeah, that's his responsibility right there. He didn't come from a blind spot. He came from right in front of you. How did you miss him? Number 27 in the middle there. Yeah, there's your guy right there. I think we're missing the whole point. This might have been a fake punt, and he was wide open, and the guy didn't throw oh, it to him. Oh, wow. man. Everybody point missed right the play. There. Look at that. Wow. She's at so that. right about that. I mean, even Jimmy Garoppolo can hit that guy. <laughs> Do you question if this is good punt coverage? What? What is this, <laughs> highly punchable? Yeah, because this show has developed an addiction to punting videos. We have shown six in the last two days. We'll go to high school to find punting videos. What do we have here? Found one. <laughs> You guys might want to look Is up. this good punch? Oh, there it is. Oh. Right there. There it is. I mean, it's bad enough that it hit his helmet, but I think he was actually looking down for some reason and happens to be the tallest guy on the field. <laughs> can we uh, can we look again, please, at this? Uh, did the snap to the punter have more of a parabola shape than the actual punt? <laughs> this is very poor hey, football. Snapping is difficult, Dan. All right, just one more time, just for the punt happy out there who haven't gotten enough punt coverage. Watch number 11 here on the sideline. Take a close look at number 11. Yes, there it is. If I would have been in the game, that doesn't happen. Worse is that 11 seems to be the only one that reacts to it, including all the people <laughs> on the field. Everyone else expected it from that dude. That guy did that again. Do you question if this was the perfect crime? We take a brief break from punting videos to show you a Carolina Hurricanes intermission where you will find a man eating delicious ice cream and an arrow that helpfully points you in his direction. What do we have here? It is Veterans Day and we know right. that Oh, this guy's looking at the phone here, distracted by his phone. Given for this country, <laughs> what? Well, that's where the crime falls apart, right there. Crime falls apart when he runs away with ice cream on his face. Listen, call me a skeptic, but this looks absolutely staged, staged. to me. His whole hand moves as he removes the ice cream cone. <laughs> Clearly, they didn't actually have the same plan because he was about to put the ice cream cone back and when the gentleman who had the ice cream stolen from him turns to his left and sees a possible culprit doesn't even look to see if he's got ice cream in his hand i'm sorry america that was clearly staged i'm sorry to ruin your joy and i'm sorry america for putting him on this television show to take away the joy of a guy running away with ice cream on his face because he wants to question the veracity of a video as if this is important journalism we're doing around here but look at my hair Speaking of important journalism, no. The answer to the question is not a perfect crime because it was caught on camera and we're all watching it now and we can identify his face. Not perfect. Usually we specialize in people running toward the ice cream. 
this going to be me? Maybe holding up my short. Why do you guys laugh at this the same way every time? You've seen this video a hundred times. Because you look so desperate every time. Well, I was hungry, and the ice cream truck was moving fast. Highly questionable is broadcast from the Clevelander Hotel on beautiful South Beach, Miami. Time to play the game that's really happy. The real host of HQ is back. What's going on, Izzy? See? Hey. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'm sorry. My timing was I off. Did it I'm backwards. rusty. Tell us what's on television. We'll tell you if we're intrigued. Weekdays at 2 p.m. Central on 670 The Score in Chicago, The McNeil and Parkin Show. Oddly specific, but the reason for this is Jeremy Roenick tells good stories. He told one on this show about getting his uh, jaw wired and the doctors didn't want him to play anymore, and so he went in with the pliers and undid everything himself. Here's Jeremy Roenick talking about gambling and golf with Michael Jordan. Like, end of the season for us, end of the season for them. I get a call from Michael. Meet, meet me at Sunset Ridge early. We're going to go play, play 18 holes. I, we didn't have a game. We had actually had a day off. So I meet him at Sunset Ridge. So we went, we, we played around, beat him for a couple thousand, and I'm getting ready to leave. Now, Bulls are playing that night. They play Cleveland that night. So I'm, I'm thinking he's leaving. It's 10 o'clock. He's like, no, let's go play again. So he goes and we, we fill up a bag full of ice and pours light, and we walk again. <laughs> we, we roll around another 18, and I take him for another couple. And, couple. Uh, yeah. And, and now we've been drinking all afternoon. Now he's getting going from Sunset Ridge to the stadium to play a game and i'm like and i'm like mess, i'm like messing around i'm like i'm gonna call my bookie and i'm, I'm gonna yeah, all the money you that you just lost to me i'm putting on cleveland tonight he goes i'll tell you what he goes he goes you i'll i'll bet you that we win by 20 points and i have more than 40 i'm like done son of a gun goes out scores 52 and they win by 26 or something uh-huh. after 18 holes of golf <laughs> And 36 holes of golf. 30, uh, 36 and holes of golf and, and having like maybe 10 Bud Lights. Stop. <laughs> Izzy, are you intrigued? I mean, absolutely. Quit while you're ahead, man. You beat him in golf. Don't gamble on basketball. Uh, Sarah, how about Great you? Point. Are you intrigued? I think we know I'm always intrigued when it comes to Michael Jordan's stories. Here's another one. Once he was so bored against an inferior opponent that he apparently chugged a six-pack at halftime to give himself more of a challenge in the second half, you will not be surprised to learn that he still won. Allegedly. That's an allegedly. Also, by the way, this is a true story, allegedly. He was losing like that to a friend of a friend, losing and losing and losing and kept the guy out there. And the guy was saying to him, look, I've got to go. I've got to get to my son's bar mitzvah. He kept him out there, kept him out there and then made it up to him by showing up at the son's bar mitzvah wearing a yarmulke. Allegedly. Tonight on History, the series debut of Kings of Pain. Nope. Mm-mm. Okay, that's a nope. no from Sarah before nope. we've even gotten started here. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of pain we have. Who are the kings? Show us. In 1983, entomologist Dr. Justin Schmidt began ranking stinging insects on a scale from one to four. He put himself in harm's way for science. Now, Adam Thorne and caveman Rob Oliva 
are taking Schmidt's index further. You guys really need to understand how dangerous this is. Just do it already! Ah! Oh, get him off, get him off, get him off, get him off! Adding venomous bites. Ah! Ah! Go! And more deadly creatures. I'm coming! Oh, my hippo just hit the boat! Ranking them on a 30-point scale with new categories. That is the worst I've ever had. Intensity. Oh! Duration. It's getting worse. And damage. Nothing missed you. No! I'm not dead yet. I feel like dying. To create history's ultimate guide to pain. Oh my god! It's only one thing that'll make me feel better. I want you to join me. Let's sting you too. Kings of Pain. Yes, I said no 40 times, and then I punctuated with a yes, and I spit all over myself. <laughs> Izzy, are you intrigued? Well, of course I'm going to watch that, but you think we're obsessed with rankings and sports? This man went 30 tiers on painful <laughs> animals. What? Sarah just fled the set. See you Never later, mind, Sarah. she's done. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Appreciate your time. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for watching, Sarah. Give them something. Give them something that you want to plug. Podcast, that's what she said with Sarah Spain every Tuesday. I would give Izzy the same opportunity, but he doesn't have anything to plug except perhaps that new hair of his. Ooh. I know another king of pain. Yes! Uh, No! Yes! The reigning king. The reigning king of pain. Yes! Never lost. Except this time.